When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 40 of the LSQ podcast, The Big 4-0. I'm your host, Jenny LSQ. I had the pleasure of visiting Bad for Lash's Natasha Khan at home in Los Angeles last fall, shortly after she had released her fantastic new album, Lost Girls. And it was just so lovely to finally get to dig in with an artist whose music has always had such emotional resonance for me and who before I'd only gotten to speak to briefly. Uh, in this conversation, you'll hear Natasha talk about some of the 80s sounds that inspired Lost Girls and how it ties into the music she heard growing up in the UK. By the way, she's about to start a North American tour. So yeah, go see that if you can. In fact, I think the first show is tonight if you're listening to this episode when it's really just fresh in the world. Also, since Best Coast are on the verge of releasing a new LP, I'm going to feature like a microdose from the LSQ interview with Bethany Cosentino from a couple of years back, episode 13. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Okay, back to Natasha. Um, I had run into her in LA a few years ago when she was here for like a long getaway, and I guess she decided she really likes it here because she never really left. So uh, that is where we begin. I do really like it. I think um, it's weird because I'm, I go through phases. Like, you know, I'm sure when you're here for long enough, you miss, that's, that's the train that goes by our house, which is nice. Um, very New York, actually. <laughs> the JM, living under the JMZ oh, at the wow. moment. Yeah, it's pretty loud. I can shut the door if No, no, it's cool. Um, but, um, so I go through phases where sometimes I really miss London and I'm going through a bit of that phase at the moment because everyone's saying that the leaves are turning and the jumpers are coming out and mm-hmm. the fireplaces are going on it's jumper and season jumper season <laughs> and like strictly come dancing's back on TV and I'm like no I'm so depressed <laughs> but um but no I think the reason obviously I've been here for almost three years because I made the album I found some great collaborators it's been really easy and fun to make visual work, uh, right. painting, videos, you know, there's a but lot But is of... this truly the first time you've lived away from home for, for this long, or did you... I think for this long, yeah, because I did live in New York in 2007 for... I was there for about a year. Right. 
but I guess this is the longest I've been away. This is the longest you've sort furthest. of relocated. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was so intrigued when I first saw you posting some of the initial videos for Lost Girls and you know, at first watching it, it's like, oh, what is this? Is this going to be? And as, as it turned out to be the beginning of, of the new album rollout, I was, I was curious whether the idea for those concepts preceded the music or vice versa. I mean, at, at what point in, in conceptualizing this collection did, uh, where, where's the cart and where's the horse? Is it the music or the yeah. sort of overall ideas? I feel like the overall narrative was something that started to work its way into my imagination pretty early on moving here. Um, I was taking long drives with a guy called Jason who worked at Be Real Films who they represent me for like commercial work and short films and stuff but we we had been kind of taking these long drives over to the office on the west side and we talked a lot about underground music like subcultures, tribal, you know, how things had changed from the 90s when we were growing up and, you know, you'd go to your local record shop and they'd save records for you and tell you about certain things that they knew you'd be into. And there was very much like this personal aspect to whatever musical scene you were into. And it, and it was pretty underground and we were saying how now with the internet that things don't really stay underground anymore, they're just exposed immediately and yeah. they don't really get that time to mature and gain flavour and kind of, yeah. you know, um, percolate. Yeah. Um, and so when we were doing these drives, because I was saying, you know, I really come here to sort of make, a, make films and um, we were talking a lot about Trump and like the border stuff was happening and the Women's March was happening and all these sort of political things going on. Also living in Hi Highland Park and being surrounded by Mexican culture and Hispanic culture and all the families. And so I started to write this story about the, this gang of girls that came from over the border and were like these mystical beings and what would happen if they came to downtown LA. Um, and so the story, the script and the story was being fleshed out. So when I started making the music, I already had a universe. Right. And I was It's interesting, though, because as you say, you, you also do separately film projects. There are extra album things that you do. And so this, this series of ideas, it could have been, you could have turned it into something else and not have it become the basis of, of the next album. Um, so how did it how did it begin to evolve into the songs and and what, were you here in this space where we're sitting now when you actually started writing the music? <laughs> we can shut. Do you no. want to shut the door? Yeah, maybe we'll shut the door. I think we should shut the door a little bit. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes. Um, I mean, you must have felt some kind of the same kind of personal connection to this concept and to the idea of these lost girls and the beginning of the, the album idea to delve into making songs about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess with every album, I'm sort of living a narrative or a story initially anyway. And that's how, I think that's like a creative tool I use to, to, to kind of, just to get myself located in a space where I can write lyrics and understand where these characters are coming from and, what this music might be feeling like but it always meshes in with real life so the first song I wrote was Kids in the Dark 
just in one day in a studio with Charles, who, Charles Scott, who I ended up co-producing the record with. And we'd been set an assignment to do a piece of music for a, a TV show. Mm -hmm. um, and they said they just wanted to locate it in like the mid 80s. And so we set up some crazy old synths and arpeggiators right. and all this stuff. <laughs> um, but what happened was, at the time, I was falling in love and feeling very romantic about LA and driving around at night time, holding hands, you know, like feet on the dashboard, right. looking at the sunset. Like that sort of vibe was in my yeah. personal life. And then this story on the side of that was kind of surrounding that, this location, these girls, this place. So when the music, when the music, you know, when I started playing the synth and the chords that I chose and the beats and the feeling of it was this fuzzy, overwhelming, like, make-out music. Yeah, yeah. And, and the 80s thing, obviously, it became... So, yeah. the, so, the, so you, once you started messing around with those keyboards, that just, that sound, it, you, let, you dug it. Because we're, you're, well, you're a little always, younger than me, but yeah. we were kids in the 80s, yeah. and so it's like, it's interesting what those sounds that, you know, what those specific sounds, those keyboards and those, those touchstone elements of 80s music, what they conjure, you know, it's oh. like, you know, I guess I always think like Phil Collins, you know, yeah. when I think like listening to your record, I was like, I was like, ooh, this is like got a little <laughs> bit of that sweet <laughs> Phil Collins shit going on Yeah, and it's funny because there's a lot of the 80s guys that I was referencing and thinking about that are English, like Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, David Bowie, um, who did Addicted to Love? Robert Palmer, was oh, he yeah. American? I can't remember, but I felt like there was sort of this, the, the 80s sound that I grew up with was, it was definitely fed by the Goonies and Steven Spielberg and E.T. and all of that Karate Kid and 80s American romance. But then there was, there's this strange 80s, Thing that's like Terry Gilliam, Labyrinth, right? Like all the weird kids' films that were very, um, yeah. that were done in Ealing Studios, you know, like very odd <laughs> English kind of, creepy yeah. synth sounds, um, and then mix that again with being in LA and thinking about Lynch and the Halloween soundtrack, John Carpenter. Like, it's just I feel like the sounds we were choosing, everything I was hearing we'd flick through things and I'd be like, that one. And, and I don't know why. I can't locate it specifically in my mind, yeah. but we all feel those sounds as something very nostalgic and sentimental. And I think, like you say, it conjures a lot just from, just from one synth sound. You can just be placed somewhere. And when you were a kid growing up you know, in the 80s, what were some of the pieces of music that were reaching you where you were that that really hit you I mean did you were you hearing Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel and all that stuff as a kid growing up well it was definitely on the radio I remember watching like the Brit Awards which is like our crappy version of the MTV Awards but seeing Peter Gabriel come on and do um give me state like that steam song and he yeah. dressed up in a giant muscle man suit and it was so bizarre like he, he just was is the weirdest performer and I loved it I remember just we taped it on, on a videotape, and I remember re-watching that. Bjork Unplugged was on MTV, um, right. you know, and then, well, I guess that's the 90s, but I'm trying to think. In the 80s, there was just Beverly Hills Cop was on TV all the time. E.T. was on TV all the time. You know, Michael Jackson, I went to see do the Bad Tour when I was nine. 
Wow. My mum and I went out and bought True Blue by Madonna when I was, that was my Wait, first Let's go record. back to the Michael Jackson thing for a minute, though. So yeah. nine years old, you got to see Michael Jackson. At Wembley huh? Stadium, doing the wow. bad concert. And was that more, Was I'm guessing your mom was into it, too. Yeah, so my mum was 21 when she had me. Right. And so when, in, the, in the 80s, she was, like, 30, which is so young. Yeah. And we experienced that whole pop music thing. Well, I experienced it through her as a lover of music and as a young woman in England in the 80s. So we always had the radio and we were always singing along to Shaka Khan and Luther Vandross and Alexandra and like all that sort of soul, cheesy kind of soul music that like the wave plays now on on the radio all the time. (laughs) Like that's my favorite radio station in LA because it plays Billy Ocean. (laughs) um, But but yeah, so that was, uh, you know, a huge part of growing up and I was hearing Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel and uh, family parties. They would play Donna Summer and, you know, it was just very much... My my mum now is, like, into Rihanna and, like, you know, she's always into what's happening now. She's very up-to-date. Yeah. So I guess in the 80s she was just really super up-to-date with giant shoulder pads and permed hair. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Does she, did she ever do anything musical herself or... Does she sing or...? She sings in a choir now, which is really sweet, but she... I think she's like an unexpressed creative person because she's super smart and very musical. And she... We had music in the house growing up all the time or in the car. It was always on and she had a big record collection. She was really into Northern Soul as a young girl. She had a crew cut, like, you know, she, yeah. she, was, she was into this different scenes and right. dancing. At, at what point did you start to notice that music wasn't just what was around, but that it was something that you cared about a lot? Like, what were the first things you really gravitated toward with, like... My know, soul. With your, yeah, or you were um, like, oh, shit. It was pretty, oh, shit. <laughs> I mean, I'd say it was, like, Joni Mitchell and James Taylor early on, because I just loved that Americana sort of um, songwritery sound. And then... As I got a bit older, I just got obsessed with Kurt Cobain. And when I was a teenage girl, I um, used to lie out on my patio in like a green mohair cardigan and look at the stars and just just was convinced that I was communicating with him. Uh, and Maybe just, you were. And just watch his live. Because he died when I was... Um, I guess I was like 14 or 13. Yeah. And... Um, I remember it being announced on the radio and then MTV went crazy with showing Courtney Love like bringing the suicide note down to all the fans and there were documentaries and then they'd do like an like an evening of Nirvana stuff and it would be unplugged and then live in utero show and then like a, you know them was it like them with Sonic Youth on tour that amazing right. punk like the I year punk broke yeah, yeah the year punk broke so as a young girl, I was just like obsessed. You were already a fan when Kurt when Kurt passed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did that? Did that? I mean, was was that an emotional thing for you? It was terrible. I had to go home from work that day. Yeah, I was like in college and I had a, a part time job that I was at that day, and it came on the radio, and I I couldn't oh. stay at work anymore. It's the same. I, I ha- the, the like the main people that I've loved. I've always heard it on the radio late at night, which is so weird. Like, so I was sitting up in bed in my teenage bedroom listening to the radio, and then it came on the news at like midnight or something. And 
I was so sad. And then the next day at school, I took all my poetry books in with me and I just remember writing like poems about how I was feeling. And, I, and no one really, that, there weren't that many kids at school that were into it. Right. Um, so I, I remember being really sad and felt just so lonely and weird about it. And then River Phoenix around that time, I remember hearing that on the radio. And then years later I heard on the radio when Michael Jackson died and I cried. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could cry now just thinking about it because for me, regardless of everything that's come out about Michael Jackson recently, but at the time when I was nine and then all through my life up until that point that he died, he was just, he soundtracked every family party, every friend party, every relationship, every holiday. Like, his music just permeated our life as, as a family. Yeah. And, um, and it was those, st those artists that I gravitated to, Michael Jackson, Bowie, Kate Bush, because they introduced theatre and film and narrative into the work, and they were yeah. such fully-fledged people that in, they, they presented universes to us. It wasn't just like a band wearing jeans playing whatever. Like I loved that, but as I grew older, I realized that I wanted to be a storyteller and I wanted to work with archetypes and mythology and characters. And these people were just blowing my mind as a kid. And talking about the 80s, that was a time when society pushed those people up to the fore and they were celebrated for their uniqueness and weirdness and crazy you know and and also following them through phases of their career where they just really changed and evolved i know it's funny to hear you say that it's like we kind of forget uh, what a great era it was for artists like that and for and for artists in general to be able to be that weird on such a huge platform like as the, new the early days of mtv yeah was such a massive platform such a mainstream platform and that it was a platform for people doing such adventurous stuff and that you got to see all those, you know, yeah, like Peter Gabriel and Talking Heads and all these Talking kinds of heads, really trippy yeah. things that... Boy George, like, you know, like weird new romantics, Brian Ferry, yeah. Brian Eno, I mean, those costumes. Yeah. It's just insane to think that now when you watch... Yeah, now that was the biggest era of music videos ever, and it was that weird. It's yeah, like we it's should cool. we should need to go back to that a little bit. Yeah. So what was the first creative thing you got immersed in that felt like beginning to explore this kind of building a whole world with, with creative work? Um, was it music first, or did you have other kind of creative things that you... Well, I thought when I was little I wanted to be a painter or a writer, and so that was the... I was working a lot with words and drawings and then that always continued and has and and still does and then music came in because I was so shy about it it took a lot longer for me to feel confident with that but I guess the first time I put them all together was when I went to university because I studied music with visual art mm -hmm. um, and in our year there was music with visual art dance with visual art and theatre with visual art and all of those disciplines like the tutors made us mix everything up. So we would make pieces of music for, for the dance performance or we'd paint a backdrop for the theatre thing and like they would do something for our... So we were all kind of being treated as like a... almost like a, you know, like Ballet Russe company or something. You know, I think about it in that way where those old ballet companies would bring on the best set designers, the best yeah. costume makers, the best 
composers, the best dancers, like, you know, and they would create a universe that was bringing in the talent, the sort of multidisciplinary talents of everybody to make this, this incredible stage piece. And I think that's sort of, that's the best way I can describe it. And they were always telling us to document and keep notebooks and draw things and make lists and use colour and, you know, to describe the music. And, I mean, it was a beautiful way of looking at it. And I guess it just trained my brain from a really early age to that this that they're not separate, that all these disciplines and mediums are enhancing each other. Right. And so tell me about an early kind of project of yours that... that that kind of synthesized some of these things? Did you, would, would it have just mm. been kind of assignments at school or before you started making rec, you know, your own records, were you writing and recording yourself singing? Yeah, I was doing a lot of that and I was working as a nursery school teacher. Uh, so I qualified as a, like a childcare teacher and I was doing that four days a week and then I was living in Brighton by the sea with my boyfriend at the time and on my days off I would just record music and... I guess the first time it all really came together was like the first show I did after university and when I was a teacher. There was a place called the Permanent Gallery in Brighton that was run by really cool kids and they would put on multimedia shows and exhibitions and they asked me to create an exhibition and then on the first night they opened I did a live performance. So I made a, a wall full of hologramic light boxes that were kind of miniature 70s televisions and then you would look through them and they had layers of perspex with lights behind and gels different colored gels and drawings inside so you'd kind of look into these hologramic universes and they were a bit like film noir sort of comic books because they had they had like comic book writing titles inside them Um, and then I made a bunch of miniature CDs of say four songs of my uh, very early Backflashes songs like Horror Show and um, there was a song called Marilyn and Horror Show and like weird songs I'd made and um, I embroidered silk kind of CD cases and they had a photograph of like these of like little family members with sort of lightning bolts behind them like E.T. style stills that I printed onto silk and then I I sewed around all the little faces and stuff and stuffed them. So they kind of became like these three-dimensional quilted... (laughs) Quilted, yeah. Quilted CD cases with um, terry cloth inside. It was like a production line and I was making all this stuff for like a month before the show. That's so cool. And then I just played four songs and everyone sat on the floor and then everyone looked around the exhibition. And I did a bunch of drawings of... um, uh, that like the still of the little girl looking in the poltergeist, poltergeist TV and Carrie holding did her you, bouquet. Did it immediately feel like uh, special? So did you feel, was it immediately exciting once it all came together and you were looking at it? It was exciting, but I was very nervous and shy. Um, but it did feel like one of the first times that my vision was in manifested world like yeah. in a, as a reality and when they gave me the little um, exhibition flyer like it had all pictures of my artwork and a description that I'd written and we had like weather sounds and thunder like just playing in the gallery and it was just like all the things I loved and had been thinking about for so long 
right. coming into like a product in a way, or just in in objects that I could give to people or that they could look at. And, and at that point, were you even? I mean, were you even looking at what you were doing as the beginning of doing music? As an, you know, did it feel like the music was the focus yet, even at that point, or? How did, how did songwriting become the thing that you really zeroed in on? Um, <clears throat> the music was definitely the focus for me because that was the most exciting aspect, was that all these things around were sort of paving a little yellow brick road to the music. Right. And then I started putting out little CDs all over Brighton and giving them to my favourite record shops to play to people. And I started doing shows and then... I guess what it, it went into just it very sort of much concentrated on the music when I got my publishing deal because they wanted me to make an album and then I was part of a the system of music production and yeah. producing records and that timeline that is kind of generic and the way everyone gets treated is the same. But what they loved about me at the beginning was that I had this huge book that was just full of all the imagery and the ideas and the world of, of Fair and Gold, that first album. Right. And um, I think that's what kind of swayed them into giving me this deal. Right. Um, there's a woman called Alison Armstrong who's still working in the music business and she's a badass. And she was just like, Natasha, this book, this is, this is you, this is what it's about. I, we don't see this. Like, this is very unique and like you have to you've got to present this to the world and this is this is what made, made it so special for us. So wait, what happened to the book? I've got it at home in England. You've got it yeah. in England. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was, was that a source, of, did that end up becoming a source of ideas for, for a minute at the beginning of, of putting out Bat for Lashes stuff? Yeah, I think I'd kind of been building up all those themes and lists and images and ideas for probably two or three years or four years. Um, so when the album came out, I just had too many ideas, like so much visual imagery and each song I described like all the instrumentation I wanted on it, how I would do the production, what, what it would feel like. Each song had a, you know, half a page of written, wow. written work and yeah, I was prepared. <laughs> do, you, do you still do that kind of a practice? Do you still have notebooks where you draw and jot down things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I've got. If I could put all the notebooks I have in my life in a room, I'd probably fill up a room. Like, wow. There's so much stuff and so many ideas that I... Sometimes I'll just go back to, like, 2003 and look in that notebook and there'll be, like, a, a ton of film ideas or song ideas or lyric ideas that I never even used. Wow. It must be interesting to look back at some of the earliest stuff and just as a mark of how much you've changed or matured mm -hmm. since then. But I also thinking about the new album and and I guess your music in general. That one of the things I love about it is that there is that it's like a, a it's like a it's like a tenderness for who you might have been as a younger person. Without like it's like uh, it's like showing us what you know now about you know the younger version of yourself or mm -hmm, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and you know what what do you think have been kind of some important creative breakthroughs that you've had because we've talked a little bit about the way your process has stayed the same but what what are some ways in which you've kind of learned like okay here's what I need to do to 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 bring it out yeah I think my kind of gathering information and ideas and that process has always been that kind of way for me but I have to say for each album 
the execution has been very different. So like The Bride, the last album, I was driving around Woodstock and staying in a house on a, on a mountain and kind of being surrounded by pine trees and creeks and thinking about all that sort of thing. And then this album was the opposite. It was, it was warm, hazy, balmy nights and moving to California, which is so different to Europe. And the light and the joy and the freedom I experienced here is kind of nothing I've ever really experienced before. But not even just because it was LA, I think it coincided with leaving a 10-year major record deal. I'm turning 40 in October. Like, you know, there's all these sort of getting my dog. That changed me. You know, yeah. it broke my heart open in a way I, I can't really describe. And so I feel like this album, more than ever, I was just being really much more free, much more carefree, like not worrying so much, just choosing sounds I love, making beats I want to dance to. Like there was really like a lot more joy and sort of um, liberation. And I think it, it comes through on the album. So I'm happy because... I think some of the other albums were just up until this point I'd been really concerned with like being of service and offering a cathartic experience for mm -hmm. the listener and myself and delving into some really deep shadow work and dark realms and very kind of difficult, painful, sensitive subject matter. And then with this one I was like, I need to get back to that girl that saw Michael Jackson at nine years old. and sang into my hairbrush with my mum and brother and sister and you know like loves dancing and is in love and is happy like some of those bits need to be shown and celebrated and shared because I don't want everyone to think I'm just go to bed in a coffin every night like being really dark <laughs> you know well, yeah um, yeah I mean it's interesting the way artists who become associated with a, with their music being cathartic for people um, or especially for like sad catharsis, because I guess you can have, you know, I guess like your party, your EDM party yeah. albums are cathartic too, yeah, but yeah. you know, that, that those artists get sort of yoked with this, like, you're supposed to make me sad and sadder every time that, you know, if you want to make albums for your whole life, it's like the, it's, yeah. not, it's not fair to be trapped to, that you have to be sad all the time or that you have to, even artists, even the most extremes of that, like, like an Elliot Smith or someone like yeah. that, where it's just like... You can't really go anywhere. You can't, you don't, you, you know, where it's just like you're, you're not allowed to be happy or something. It's just like you're required to commit to, you know, and bringing it back to Kurt Cobain, too, where you're just I like, do. no, it's not fair to ask that of our artists, that they be sad forever, or like yeah, that and you get more and more dialed in on the, like, making us sad as their job, you know? I agree, and I, th I think that it's... Um, I think you need to bring your audience along with you and and like you say if you're going to do something for a lifetime you have to evolve and, and grow yeah. because otherwise it dies and it but becomes also a it's formula. just like you are who you as an artist you are who you are and it doesn't matter what kind of album you make the trademarks of of your sound and your music are going to be in there it's just like yes you i've listened to lost girls a bunch of times now and i get what you're saying but it is also sounds like it does make me sad the songs are sad there is plenty of sadness on the album even as, yeah. even as something you consider a more uh, on the more joyful end of the spectrum it's like you don't have to try for the things that are inherently in there they're always going to be yeah they're always going to be in there yeah like the 
exactly like the the kind of prism that I see things through will always be colored by you know childhood experiences or heartbreak or whatever happened to me that makes me choose certain chords and sounds because to me yeah I love the happy sad combination and I you know I like you say I think I can't really help myself making those sorts of things but the liberation that I felt in doing songs like So Good or Feel For You, like girl group sort of dancey things was just so much fun. And um, yeah, and so I want I want to evolve and I want to grow. And I, I, yeah, I don't think an artist should, should have to um, conform to a specific label because as we were talking about before, those artists, we love David Bowie. I mean, look at his Berlin album and then he does like Let's Dance. You know, it's like there's there's room. Lou Reed did some fucking such dark stuff and then Take a Walk on the Wild Side, you know, like yeah. it, like even Take a Walk on the Wild Side's a great pop song, but it has the darkness, it has the backing vocals. It's talking about people taking heroin and drag queens and parties and all of that, like you say, but but it's different prisms, it's different surfaces of a prism for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and or even someone like Kanye or or Bob Dylan or yeah. you know these artists who they change so drastically that it's like people get mad about it. But it's just like, no, can you imagine if in your thing you like to do the best, and for any average person, whatever you like to do the best, if you were forced to just keep doing it the same way every yeah. time, that wouldn't feel good. I want to talk to you a little bit about singing and about because obviously your your singing voice is one of the signatures of your music and. Um, and it, it sounds like something that w- would have to have been developed in part as a technical skill just because you have such a, you know, sort of beautiful, technically speaking, such a beautiful voice. Did you do training as a singer at all? No. How did you find I mean, your, did it, all, did, it, did it come out sounding th- this way initially? I mean, I, di- I guess I did do certain, I, I did do training, but not in the conventional sense, so... My training was to do with confidence, training myself to open up my chest and like loosen my jaw and learn how to project and mm. things like that because my voice is very airy. There's a lot of breath in my voice and early on I kind of sang into myself like this um, and <laughs> felt very shy and I'd run out of breath quickly because I was giving, I didn't have any diaphragm kind of control or strength because I didn't understand how it worked. I, I was self-taught on everything. Um, and then when I went to university, we had this teacher called Juliet who used to make us lie on the floor and she'd, you'd breathe in for eight, hold for 10, breathe out for 12, like these sorts of things. And what we didn't realise, but what they're actually doing is um, they, they get your parasympathetic nervous system kicked in so you calm down and you're not so anxious and nervous. They get you to expand your lungs and increase your lung capacity. And then as you're breathing out, you're kind of, your diaphragm's like pushing up and you're tensing your stomach. So all these things we were doing, I didn't really realise, but they were helping me in the background. And then I did just sort of develop my own singing voice. And then when I started doing live shows, sometimes I'd lose my voice. And I remember one time I got such a sore throat that I had to take like I couldn't sing and they gave me some steroids so that I could like get through the show and I was like this is this sucks and so um, yeah (laughs) and it was ridiculous I was like this is this is like Beyonce shit here but I so I I actually 
probably on my, I think it was on my third album, I met a guy called Don Lawrence who works in New York and he teaches Lady Gaga and he did PJ Harvey and oh, wow. he's a cool guy. Yeah. And I only ever saw him two or three times, but he gave me, he recorded our sessions on my phone and I still use those now to warm up before shows because it's, you're kind of being an athlete and basically you have to protect your vocal cords by clearing them of mucus and warming them up and exercising them so they're stretching and they're just muscles. And if you don't do that, you know, if you go on a two-month tour and you don't do that, I can't, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it. So I have, I guess I have exercised my little, the biceps of my vocal cords now <laughs> for a while. And, I, and, and But I didn't like sing, you know, I don't sing all the time. You'd think if you're a singer, like you just walk around singing all the time. And me and my boyfriend sing a lot in the car and stuff like that. But I'm not practicing my vocal exercises when I'm not doing shows or recording. So I just started because my first show's in like a month. But it comes back pretty quickly. Where does the tour start? In the UK. Yeah. yeah so you'll be back for jumper season and uh, yeah, be back for some dancing. some cold, cold, cozy November <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Maybe you could be a future guest on Strictly Come. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that would be hysterical. I'm, I'm pitching it. Right yeah. Now. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. It's really nice to see you again. You know, some people you can just feel uh, that they had to be an artist. Like, it's just in their spirit, in their energy. And Natasha has that for sure. Um, I, I was actually in the process of editing this episode because the interview happened last fall. But then just the other day, I was uh, driving uh, here in L.A. And she was walking down the street, walking her dog, wearing overalls and a baseball cap. And my heart exploded. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Bad for Lashes are on the road now with dates until late February, and you can find out more at badforlashes.com. Uh, next up, looking back a couple of years to 2018 and episode 13, lucky number 13 of the LSQ podcast, I wanted to feature an excerpt from that interview with Best Coast's Bethany Cosentino in honor of the impending arrival of her new album, uh, Best Coast's fourth studio LP, Always Tomorrow, comes out later this month. And in this clip, Bethany talks about being in the midst of a much-needed creative break. It's been very interesting because this is obviously, this is the longest amount of time where we haven't put something out. But, like, there was a period of time where people were just like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm literally just living my life. Like, I'm writing music. I'm not writing music. I'm, like, hiking with my friends. This is literally the first time I've lived, a, like, an I'm-at-home life. Like, I haven't been able to do this in so long that I really feel like I needed this before I could make, before I could really get back into the mindset of making another record. Like, I'm single for the first time in my adult life. I have like most of my closest friends are people I grew up with that I've like reconnected with. I'm sober. I'm like so much in my life has changed that I just feel like I needed, I needed just to take some time off to just be like, you know what? I'm not going to force another record out. I'm not going to just like do what I've already done. I'm just going to sort of like push the pause button, continue to like work, but just sort of like go at it at a snail's pace. And some people are just like, they can't handle it and they're like where's the record and I'm like 
dude, just chill. Like the record will happen. And in the meantime, there's a billion other people putting music out, Yeah, (laughs) you know? So I just feel like sometimes you have to like really pay attention to what's going like as a creative person you have as a person in general but especially as a creative person you have to pay attention to like what is going on inside of you so that you can like actually create something great yeah if you don't you know you don't have you legitimately don't have to until you're ready yeah yeah and I feel like I'm finally like like I said I'm finally like I understand that and I'm okay with it and I've gotten to be I've gotten past the whole like Cause I used to just take everything. Jesus, <laughs> Josie's going. For it. I used to take everything so damn personally, and I feel like now I just understand where it's like, you know, now a like kid yelling at me that the album isn't done doesn't affect me the way it would have like four years ago. Cause four years ago I would have been like, <laughs> yeah, I know, and I would have been well, like, the, yeah. yeah. And now I'm just like, who fucking cares? <laughs> like, there's a mute button for that, you yeah. know? So yeah. And like it's it's complicated too because this is my job. Like I don't have another job. It's like when I'm not touring or making records, I'm not like working some other job. So yeah. I I had to kind of compromise and say like, okay, this is going to mean that I'm not going to be making as much money as I'm used to. This is going to mean that I'm not going to be like this is going to make mean that I have to like readjust to being a person that's like yeah I'm home like most of my friends are like you're here I'm like I'm here like you're not used to it but here I am you know (laughs) but I feel like that was like very essential and the record and the songs that I'm writing the songs that I'm writing are very like reflective of that and you'll definitely be able to tell that like oh this girl went through some shit and she came out on the other side and she like took a she like took a, a break that was like much much needed so yeah yeah I feel like refreshed You know, we're just glad she's back, baby. Look for that new Best Coast album in stores and online later this month. And they're on the road extensively this spring and summer as well. Thanks again to Natasha and Bethany for their time and for being rad. And I've got upcoming episodes with Toon Yard's Meryl Garbus, Phosphorescence Matthew Howe, Group Love's Hannah Hooper, and more. Subscribe for crying out loud. Uh, And if you want to reach me with questions or feedback, etc., I'm at Jenny LSQ. Thanks so much for listening. 